Bible here. You may want to open it up to Nehemiah chapter 1 because we're going to be spending quite a few weeks in this book and I'm very excited to be kicking off the series today. How many of you are familiar with the story of Nehemiah? Don't worry, we're not going to have a quiz. Okay, not that many of you or others of you just have sore shoulders. Well, the, the book of Nehemiah is, is set in Iran in a place called Susa. You can see uh, Susa above Elam there, and that's contemporary Iran. Uh, you can see the two rivers, the, the Tigris and the Euphrates. That is obviously Iraq. Um, which back in the day was called Babylonia, and back in the day the Iran, Iranians were known as the Persians. And the story of Nehemiah is set in the 5th century BC. So that's about 450 years before Jesus showed up here. And we're going to read the whole of the first chapter, and then I'm going to share um, how relevant this chapter is for us. So let's read it together. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Now, in order to understand the story, you need to know what the exile was. Well, there were in all 12 tribes of Israel, and um, those 12 tribes did not honor God. They did not obey God's word, and so God punished his people, and initially 10 of the 12 tribes were completely destroyed forever, and they became known as the Samaritans because they intermarried with the Canaanites. So that's what happened to 10 of the 12 tribes. There were only two tribes left. <laughs> I went like that. That would be four. Two tribes left, um, Judah and baby Benjamin. And they became known as Judah because Benjamin kind of got sucked into Judah. Um, so it was just Judah left in the south of Israel. They also didn't honor God. As God's people, they didn't do what they should have. They didn't live how they should have. And so in 587, the Babylonians uh, came from Iraq where they were living, and they conquered Judah. And they shipped all of the people, well, 90% of the people, the ones they didn't kill, they shipped them off to Babylon. And that's where Boney M got their song by the rivers of Babylon. We lay down. We couldn't sing our songs because we were so sad. Okay. Uh, so now time has gone by, and there's a new guy in charge of the then world. Uh, and his name was Oxyxerxes, number one. And he's based in Susa. Okay. You're with the context of our story. Good. So, so Nehemiah, he's living in Susa. He's the cupbearer to Xerxes. And he meets some guys that have come from Jerusalem. So he's super excited because this is now an opportunity for him to find out how's it going in Jerusalem. They said to me, those that survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. 
when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his covenant, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you this day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. And then Nehemiah takes it upon himself to remind God about a few things. He thinks God has forgotten these things. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And that's indeed what happened. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you are exiled to the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants, your people, whom you've redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of all your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Do we have any cupbearers here tonight? Okay, it's not the same as a barman. A, a cup a cupbearer was a very specialized position back in the day. You were the, the chief wine steward, valet, butler for, for the emperor. And you would uh, make sure that the food and drink that the emperor had was of good quality and safe for him to eat and drink. I pulled off Wikipedia a few ideas about a cupbearer, but this was a trusted position. And you would develop a good relationship with the person you worked for. Because after all, you were serving them their food, their drink. So Nehemiah would have had the opportunity to develop a, a personal relationship with um, King Xerxes. But what can we learn from the story of Nehemiah? And I've got about eight, point, eight points for us tonight. Okay, and some of them are long points, some of them are very deep, some are not so deep. But I believe there's a great deal that we can learn from the story of number, uh, Nehemiah. The first, the first point I want to make is that he was the kind of person that asked questions. He wants to be informed about what's going on in his world. And I hope tonight that you are that kind of person. And we really do have access to information like no other generation on this planet has ever had. He, he, he wants to be informed. He wants to have the very best information that he can have. And so when he hears, hey, there's some guys that have come to Susa and they're from Jerusalem. What a great opportunity for me to find out how's it going with these old Israelite brothers and sisters of mine. And how is God's work advancing? 
because Nehemiah understood that the Jews were God's people. They had been put on this earth for a purpose. Their responsibility was to reach the world and to proclaim the kingdom of God. And they'd failed dismally at that, but God had given them a second chance. Some had been able to return. And so Nehemiah has this opportunity to be informed. He's interested. He wants to know what happens. And like, like so many people, unlike so many people today, he's, he's not just interested in his own little world. There was another prophet around at this time whose name was Haggai. It's near the end of the Bible. And Haggai deals with this whole question of don't be so wrapped up in your own little world as a person. Haggai says we shouldn't just be concerned about ourselves and our personal prosperity and how we're doing. We need to be concerned with God's church, its health, how, how the kingdom of God is doing. And so Haggai challenges the people in chapter 1, and this is what his whole message is about. Is it time for you to be living in paneled houses when this house, my temple, remains a ruin? And he explains to the people, he says, you've planted much, you've harvested little, you eat but you never have enough, you drink but you're never satisfied, you put on clothes but you're not warm, you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Why is that, says God? It's because you're focused on your, your, yourself and, and your own needs instead of on the well-being of, of God's church. Go up into the mountains and instead of paneling your own house, go and uh, build my house and then you will be blessed, says the Lord. But my takeaway here is that Nehemiah was a person concerned about other people. Not just con he had a cushy job. He was the cupbearer to the king. He could have lived there and held down that job for another 50 years. But he was actually deeply concerned about bigger things. He didn't have the attitude, out of sight, out of mind. And many of us can live like this. We don't want to know about the problems that other people have. Because if we don't know, then we don't have to be involved. Let's not be like that. Jesus said, if we just love the people that love us, what's the big deal about that? We, we're going to get no reward for that. Jesus says in our relationships with other people, how we interact with other people, if we only greet the people that, that greet us, if, if we're only interested in the people that are like us and that are our friends, that, that's no good we're taught. I want you to notice that he finds out that things are going very, very, very badly. In fact, they couldn't be going any more badly than they were going in Jerusalem. Okay, admittedly, everybody could be dead. That, that would be worse. But things are going terribly in Jerusalem. Where's the verse? He asks them about the exile. And he finds out that things are going really badly. They said to me, these are the people that have come from Jerusalem, those who survived the exile, i.e. they were in Babylon, they managed to get back. They're back in the province. They're in great trouble and disgrace. 
The walls of Jerusalem are broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. And so in the process of of being interested, of of asking other people, how is it going there? He finds out the news is, is bad. And friends, I would be amiss if I didn't bring this message home to our South African situation. There are people that don't live very far away from us at all. And things are going very, very badly with them. And, and churches are struggling. And, and the work of God is, is not advancing. And these things should, should concern us. We need to ask the right questions and discover what is happening. What does it mean that the people are in great trouble, in great trouble? Well, if your wall of your city is broken down, it means anybody can just cruise in in the middle of the night and take what they want. What does it mean that the gates of the city are burned? The gates of a city represent governance, leadership. All the leaders of a city sat at the gates and they could watch everything going in and out. They were the big wigs. They sat at the gates. So when the Bible says the gates of Hades will not prevail against us, the Bible is saying the leadership, the governance of evil is not going to prevail against us. It's not that gates are going to come attacking us. Gates stand for leadership and, and, and governance. The gates are, are destroyed. They're communities without leadership without cohesion without protection without boundaries and they're in disgrace we find out why are they in disgrace it's because these jewish people are failing in their mandate from god to represent him in the world they're in disgrace And again, if I can bring this to our Cape Town situation, here's our friend Johannes Lata. He's a Baptist pastor. He preached here in the morning, I would say four weeks ago. He is standing in his church building. What do you think of his church building? It's not so great, is it? It's it's not going to be a good place for the congregation to worship. But that really is the church building. And, and when we hear things like this, it should deeply concern us. I want to show you how Nehemiah responds when he finds the news about how it's going, how the work of God is prospering. Verse 4 says, when I heard these things, that the walls are broken down, that the gates are non-existent, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept I sat down and and I wept his heart is moved by what he sees and by what he finds out too often our response is very different to this we find stuff out but we're indifferent we don't care or there's so much going on we can't deal with it now Very often, people are in deep trouble because of their own foolishness and stupidity and laziness. But very often, people are in trouble because they're caught in a cycle of poverty that that has nothing to do with their making. 
And we should be moved when we discover that people are in deep trouble. We should really feel it when we find out that the church of God is struggling. And when I think of a place like Kailicha, where millions of people live, and I think how many, I think of how many good gospel preaching, Bible-based churches there are in those communities, they're very few. Well, there might be a hundred thousands, because every sort of fifth guy set himself as a, up as a pastor. But if you ask how many good, solid churches are there, they're not that many. And, and I believe the work of God needs, needs assistance in those areas. As a result, we see how Nehemiah responds. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed. Again, what a beautiful example for us of how we should respond when we hear that things are not going well with our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we hear about God's church struggling, broken, without good leadership. When we hear about people in poverty through no fault of their own or through injustice that maybe we've even had a hand in collectively. When we hear things like this, we should mourn, we should fast, we should pray. And then in his prayer, there's worship in his prayer. He gets perspective and he talks about how awesome God is. And he remembers that God is a covenant-keeping God. And that he has a plan for his people Israel. And then he launches into confessing sin. Funnily enough, I preached here on the spiritual discipline of confession not too long ago. But he launches into confession, and this is what he says. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, your decrees, and laws. You gave your servant Moses. Before I say a few things about corporate repentance, let me just make this point. I believe in the Old Testament period, one could confess the sins on behalf of the nation, the community, because they were a nation collectively that God dealt with and punished collectively. But in the New Testament, it's a lot like that. And I don't believe that we can confess sins on behalf of other people. You might be born Dutch, but you're not actually responsible for what Jan van Riebeek did all those centuries ago. You can't say sorry for that. So while I don't believe in this idea of corporate confession, because it's an Old Testament concept, in the New Testament we come to God as an individual and we confess our part, our role. I do believe that we can still identify and recognize the sins of the community of which I happen to be a part. So maybe that's how we need to interpret this. And Nehemiah identifies with the Jewish community. And he's able to say, Lord, we have really messed up. 
We have acted wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed your commands, decrees, and your laws. And as I was studying this passage, I, I came to realize that in evangelicalism, confession is a lost art. We're not very good at really saying sorry for stuff before God. But there's a time and a place for us to both examine our hearts and the community of which we are a part and to identify and to call out and to, to own and, and repent of sinful attitudes and things that collectively we may have failed in. One of the reasons why I believe that as evangelicals we're weak on repentance is that we've grown up with this message that we are just so absolutely fantastic. And that's leading, by the way, to all sorts of problems. Our speaker yesterday morning, uh, she's from Oxford, so whatever she said must be correct, um, said that this generation of, of, of school leavers, never before have they faced so much anxiety, been so depressed, all this kind of stuff. There's a generation of people that really have grown up with unrealistic expectations about the world and unrealistic beliefs about themselves. Let me just pop a bubble tonight while I'm on a roll. Many Christians today believe that the purpose of their life is to be happy. Friends, I've got very bad news for you. If that's why you're at church tonight, because you think it's some sort of pathway to personal happiness. Uh, the goal of the Christian life is not your personal happiness. It's the glory of God. It's to grow in character. It's to do justice. And sometimes doing the right thing might make us quite unhappy. And, and God's okay with that. And so should we be. Let me pop another bubble here. What's the goal of marriage? Many people think it's my personal happiness. It's not. <laughs> I hope that happiness and joy will be a byproduct of having a good marriage. But it sure ain't the goal purpose of your marriage. God's got a much bigger plan for marriage for you what should we be doing as a church making as many people as possible as happy as we possibly can there's some churches that actually think that is their mandate and so their whole services and ministries geared at making people happy but that's really not what it's about god's far more interested in our character development in developing things in lust in us like humility and empathy for other people and being gracious and being honest and being wise and if god needs to make us a little bit unhappy because by doing that he can shape us and form us he's gonna do it and the sooner we wake up to that reality the better we must consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds Knowing that the testing of our faith leads to perseverance and perseverance, character and character results us being mature in Christ. 
That's God's goal. Sixthly, I see in this passage that Nehemiah is, is full of hope. Even though he says we've acted very wickedly, there's deep repentance. He still has hope. He still has hope. I think I might have missed out a section here, so let me just backtrack again. What is this thing about calling out and identifying the sins of the community collectively of which we may be a part? A little while ago, Julius Milema caused a real stir, as he always does. I mean, he's a stirrer. He said about the Athol Trollope vote and all of that in Nelson Mandela Bay that he wants to head down there and he wants to cut the throat of whiteness. Okay? That doesn't mean he wants to kill white people. And we really need to understand what he is saying it. And, and I need to advocate for him because he doesn't say what he wants to say very well. When he says, I want to cut the throat of whiteness, He's saying, for example, there is a particular way that white people in this country have historically responded to situations. There's a way in which white people do things and operate. There's a whole set of values that white people have that people of other cultures actually find quite offensive. And if you're white, you might be sitting here, what do you mean they find some of my values offensive? That's offensive to me. Now I'm triggered. The, tr the truth is that every cultural group has values and practices and does things in a way that actually other people at times quite fi find quite offensive. When Julius wants to cut the throat of whiteness, he's saying there's stuff about white culture and the way whites have operated that's hurtful and that he really doesn't like and that he wants to destroy but as white people, and I can only speak for white people because that's the demographic I happen to be part of through fate. We need to be identifying those things of our community, those corporate sins, ways of behaving that are offensive to other people, as does every other group. I'm not just part of the white community. There's another community of which I'm a part of. What do you think it is? Men. Oh, yes. Again, fate chose me to be a man. Like Nehemiah, sometimes I need to say, I and my fellow men have acted in ways that have been offensive and harmful to women, and, and we need to repent of that. I can't confess the sin of another man, but I can call out the sins of those communities. There can be pride in many communities. There are school communities that have pride problems. You'll occasionally see it on a car sticker. It's even got the word pride in it. Well, churches, anything that gives a set of people an identity can lead to pride. What are those sins in our community that we need to perhaps confess and own up to? The indifference to the suffering of others, greed. 
chauvinistic attitudes towards women, the lack of respect for other people, exploitative wages, unfair practices. If the hat fits, wear it. I think we need to rediscover the, the Christian art of confession. And confession's not just about the stuff we did that we shouldn't do. It's also about the stuff that we didn't do that should have done. But he's full of hope, as I said. And he's servant-hearted. Look how Nehemiah describes himself. Even though he's this big shot cupbearer, he still knows before God he's just God's servant. And I love this concept of worship. Who delights in revering your name. What a great picture of worship. And God shows him the next step. God shows him the next step. And after this four-month period of praying about what's deeply moved him, he knows he needs to talk to his boss and say, I need to make some changes in my life and my lifestyle for the sake of God's kingdom. And he says, Lord, give me favor and give me opportunity to speak to you. Xerxes. What can we learn from the story of Nehemiah chapter 1? Here's the recap. He wants to be informed about what's happening in the world around him. I hope you're informed that you're not just wrapped up in your little world, that the blinkers are off, that you talk to the right people who, who are living in those places and you discover how are those people, how is the work of God doing? Will you ask the right questions? Secondly, will you, will you allow your heart to be moved? Because it's not just good enough to know about what's happening. I think often of the, the story of the Good Samaritan. Here it is. The priest walks down the road. He sees the guy is beat up. It says he saw the man and he did nothing. Then the worship leader walks by. When he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He also knew what had happened to the man. Then the Samaritan, this descendant of one of those failed tribes who'd intermarried with the Canaanites, he comes along. He sees as well, but then we're told another fact. He took pity on him. His heart is moved, and that's why the good Samaritan did something about what he saw. The other thing I learned from Nehemiah chapter 1 is that Nehemiah takes responsibility for his own sins, and his people's failures. He's willing to identify them, to own them, and to confess them. And his hope is in God. And then there's this ending where we see that he decides to go and, and ask for favor. I'm done, I think. I've got a few pages, but uh, we'll, we'll give them a skip.
Let's pray together. Lord, as we've read the story of Nehemiah, we pray that you'd help us to understand it and also to learn from it. Help us to be like Nehemiah, who asked the right questions, who was concerned about other people, their welfare, their, their, their lives, and how the work of God was progressing. Lord, like Nehemiah, when we ask the right questions, if we find out that things are not going well, may we be moved, may our hearts be touched. Come and touch our hearts right now, Lord. Take away the hardness that makes us indifferent to the suffering of others. And we pray too, Lord, that you would help us to, to recognize the sins in our own lives as individuals and the sins of whatever community we may be a part of. Give us humble hearts. Help us to see how much our sin offends you, Lord. And we pray that we too would have hope, Lord. And also that after we've prayed and sought your face, we will know what you want us to be doing. Lord, I pray that this message tonight would not be lost on us, would not be like water off a duck's back, in one year and out the other. We pray, Lord, that this message would settle in our hearts, that we would be changed, and that we would better reflect your likeness going forward. And all God's people said, Amen.